Well, if you haven't already, open up to the book of Ephesians. We are going to pick up our verse-by-verse study through this book. And last week, we began our study uh, by looking at basically the first sentence in the book of Ephesians, which takes up 11 verses in our English translation. This morning, we'll finish up the chapter by looking at Paul's second sentence, which takes up the rest of the verses in chapter 1 of Ephesians. Uh, as I said to you, that the, in the original text, uh, this first chapter really consists of two sentences, and, and Paul is just so excited that he can barely stop himself from writing, and so we have the run-on sentence like crazy. Um, and so what we have here is verses 3 through 14 is a praise of Paul, his excitement over what the triune Godhead did in securing salvation for humanity. And he says it's all three members, all three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, had secured, they all played a different role, the Father electing, the Son redeeming, the Spirit sealing, but they all played a role in bringing salvation to humanity. And so Paul is just overjoyed with that praise and pens out the many blessings that we receive because of that. Well, as he catches his breath and allows us to do the same, he begins another long sentence, and this sentence is not necessarily a sentence of praise as it is a prayer. It is one long prayer of Paul asking that God continues this work of grace in the lives of, his believer, of, the, of these believers. Now, as I said before, the Bible was not written to us, but the Bible was certainly written for us. And by that, I mean we weren't the original recipients of the, book of, uh, the letter of Ephesians, so it wasn't written to us, but because the Holy Spirit knew what he was up to, certainly the things that Paul spoke to the Ephesians is applicable for us as well. So while some of the the cultural issues are different, the issues of the heart are identical. And so what Paul prays for these Ephesian believers certainly has traction in our lives this morning, and we definitely want God to bless that as we continue to study at it. So looking at Paul's prayer, we learn a lot about the Christian life. For example, in the very couple first verses, we learn what to be thankful for. We, We learn a little bit about prayer itself. We learn how Christians grow in grace. We learn how, as Christians, we can have confidence that what Paul is praying will actually take place in our lives because the amazing testimony that God had given the world in raising Jesus, and we'll get to that in a little bit in verses 20 to 23, we learn all that just by looking at Paul praying in these seven verses. So we see how Paul is thankful for these Ephesians in verses 15 and 16. We see how he's praying for God's grace in their lives in verses 17 to 19. And we see this display of God's power in history in verses 20 to 23. If you're a note taker, let me just say that one more time briefly. So we see thanks for evidence of grace, verses 15 and 16. We see prayers for growth in grace in verses 17 to 19. And then in verses 20 to 23, we see amazement at God's historical display of power in history. So that's the outline of Paul's prayer. Let's jump into it section by section. Let me start with verse 15. Paul writes this, For this reason, referring to everything that's come before in verses 3 through 14, because of all that God has done, but also he's pointing to what immediately follows, for this reason, Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers. 
Paul is amazed at the blessings that these Ephesians have been poured out through Christ. And he's also equally amazed at the fruit that that's born in the lives of these Ephesians. What fruit is that? He says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints. So easy to read that and just move, move beyond to what we think is more of the meat of the passage, but that's very significant. Here's the first kind of principle here. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will always, always result in love for his people. You know, that old dinner, dinner manner maximum, salt and, pepper, salt and pepper travel together. It's the same kind of concept. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ always results in love for his people. Why do I say that? Because it's so easy so in our very individualistic, personalized culture to say, I have a faith in Christ. Uh, and you've seen the bumper sticker, I love your Christ, I just don't like your Christians. Well, Paul's saying you cannot love Christ and, uh, uh, unless you are loving his Christians. Why? Because the, bi- the body is his bride. So Paul is saying, I hear of your faith and I hear it, and I hear it being testified, your love for all the saints. And again, this is no small feat. As we talked about, who are the people who make up the church of Ephesus? They were Jews, and they were Gentiles. You could not find a more polarized group, a more polarized culture ever, and to have them loving one another, not just the ones they liked, not just the ones they agreed with, but loving one another in such harmony that the word had spread all throughout Macedonia. Think for a second, the, the, the most polarized groups that you can imagine in our culture. You've got conservatives and liberals. You've got the, the 99% and the 1%. You've got those people who love country music and then the rest of us, right? No matter how far apart we might be, in Christ they came together and they came together harmoniously and they came together with such harmony that their word had spread. Something radical is happening happening. In Ephesus, you recall from our brief overview of the book of Ephesians, so radical was their love for one another and harmony that it actually shook the economic foundations of that city, that huge urban metropolis. That's why there was that riot in Acts chapter 18 and 19. So radical was the conversion and transformation of the people that they stopped buying idols and all the trades, the silversmiths of the union that made idols, this is, read the text, Acts 18 and 19, we're going broke. And they blame Paul and this message of the gospel and these Christians actually living like Christians. And so Paul says, I am grateful for what I see happening in your lives. This expression not only reveals Paul's shepherding heart, it's very instructive to us as a church, both personally and corporately. The first thing is, we need to recognize God's working in people's lives and acknowledge it. I know we, 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 we say we do that, but I think what I mean is we need to really seek it out. And when we see fruit of conversion, we need to encourage that person. It is no small thing for a sinner to bear fruit of being a saint. And that's all of us in this room. We're all sinners. We're all saints in Christ It is no small thing to start to bear fruit of the Spirit if you've become a Christian. I mean, we give each other high fives when you get a three-point shot from the top of the key, right, if you're playing basketball. How much more should we be giving each other high fives when someone starts to recognize the sin in their own heart is worse than the sin everywhere else? 
right? It's easy to point out the sin everywhere else, but you know you're growing when you're more grieved about the sin in your own heart. We ought to be giving each other high fives for that. Paul, if you read his letters, was a master encourager, right? Maybe not as much as Barnabas, whose name was son of encouragement, but Paul could encourage people. And in our culture, that's so kind of, you know, one inch deep but a thousand miles wide, cultivating genuine encouragement is a skill that of all people should have it, it should be us. Have you ever noticed when you've ever tried to encourage somebody, this is kind of our culture, they actually get uncomfortable with it? Have you had that experience when you've actually felt so overwhelmed and thankful for somebody that when you shared it with them, they actually got uncomfortable because they're not used to it? They're thinking you're going to try and sell them something or something like that. But Paul, and modeling for us, we ought to see when there's fruit being born, we encourage that. And it ought to do something in us as well. It ought to stir within us an equal desire to bear that kind of fruit. And we'll see what it, what it spurs Paul onto in a little bit more. But gang, this, sorry, I just called you all gang, sorry. Brothers and sisters, <laughs> encouragement does not come naturally. <clears throat> I'm not a natural encourager. And I remember in my 20s, I was convicted of that. And so I said, I'm going to make a point to try and encourage people. And, and the reason I'm sharing this is it may come artificially to you. It may be difficult, but cultivate it nonetheless. I was in a line in my pickup truck in Taco Bell. It was late at night. I don't know why we were there. A buddy of mine, my college roommate, and it was clear that the woman serving us, she was probably 16, you know, just 17 years old. It was clear they must have been understaffed because she was stressed. And you could almost see arguments happening in the cars in front and the food going back and forth, that the food didn't get placed well. And I said to Monty, I said, watch, I'm going to encourage this girl. So we, we pulled up to the drive-thru, to the drive and it was one of the woods where the, the window was on the other side of where the driver's seat is. I don't know what's the deal with that, but I pulled up. And she kind of was rushing, putting our food in, in Monty's hand. And I leaned over and I looked at her and I said, hey, you're doing a real good job. You know, I meant it um, genuinely, but I think it came out really sarcastically like, hey, you're doing a good job. Because she saw that stop and started to tear up. And, like, and Monty was like, you idiot, just get out of here. So we just drove on. I really hope she knows. Now, maybe, you know, maybe she just knew the Spirit would tell her he really meant that well. The point is encouragement doesn't come naturally to us. And my wife could share tons of stories of me trying to encourage her that went, felt flat, bad, really bad. But she's gracious and loving and allows that. The point is, part of the fruit of the Spirit is to encourage people. And we need to do that. You know you're doing a good job that when the person you're encouraging starts to feel actually a little uncomfortable. Not because they think you're going to sell them something, but because they've never experienced that kind of ministry before. So Paul sees it in the Ephesians, and it spurns him on to even more spiritual fruit in his own life. It spurs him to remember them, and what does he do? He launches into this wonderful prayer for them in verses 17 and 19. I'll read that in a little bit. But basically, this in 17 and 19 and on is a petition to these believers who he just addressed in verses 3 to 14, who have been so blessed, this prayer is a petition that they would learn to grasp God's hope, God's grace, His glory, and His power. See, he's so encouraged by the fruit he's seeing, hearing about them, he wants to pray for them. And what he prays for is that they might learn about God's hope, God's glory, and God's power. If you're a new Christian and you are new to praying, this is a wonderful passage to develop your prayer life. 
If you are a, a more experienced Christian, this is a wonderful passage to test your prayers by. Now, that might sound odd. Test your prayers by. And it sounds odd because we have the idea that prayer is a real private thing, isn't it? Right? So, so whatever I'm praying has got to be good, so why, why, why test my prayers? I think that's because we do live in a culture where so much of our faith is privatized. And you know what the danger with that is? Because it's so privatized, I may be getting it wrong, but I'm not going to change because no one speaks into it to actually change that. And there's so much about Christianity, let me say this, that is personal, but also has a corporate public element to it. Let's not confuse what the culture wants to tell us. Religion's fine, just keep it private which is the craziest thing in the world, because religious systems are worldview systems. By definition, you live out a worldview, right? But we reinforce that by keeping things private, which is why I love what Pastor Adam's done the last couple weeks. He is actually, and it's been so subtle, some of you may not have even noticed it, he's actually in the middle of the worship set asked a few of you spontaneously to pray out loud for us. Did you catch that last week and the week before? That's just not because we think that's cool. That's because when we gather, these very private or these very personal blessings of being a Christian has to have a public manifestation as well. After all, you're not gathering here to watch other Christians do the Christian thing. You are gathered here for a what? Service. We are serving. I'm exercising my particular spiritual gift. You all have a gift to offer as well. And so much of the Christian life has this dual component. It's personal, but it's not necessarily private, right? It's personal, and there's a corporate element to it. You can see before me this table. That's another example. The Lord's Supper is a very personal thing. But embedded in it is this realization that there's a very corporate experience to it. After all, God is not calling to himself a group of autonomous, self-powered individuals. What does the Bible say God's calling to himself? Anybody take a, take a chance. What does God say he's calling to himself? A, ah, I heard it. It was right here. What? He's calling a people. Yes. He's not calling a group of individuals. He's calling a people group, a nation, a community that have values that they're shared. And part of that is being willing to develop those personally and share them corporately. Prayer is one example of that. So we ask people to pray out loud, right? Uh, another example of that is just the way I live. The way I live is not my own personal thing, as if you have nothing to say about it, right? How I conduct myself, how you conduct yourself out in the world is just not a reflection of you. It is a reflection of the God you profess to serve. And if you serve him well, that brings him glory. And if this whole church is serving him well, that the community says, man, I may not agree with those people at Christ Community Church. I, don't, may not, I may not even like them, but I respect that they're consistent with what they say they believe. Likewise, if I'm not living the way I ought to be out there, I'm bringing dishonor to the name of God. If we as a church are not living the way we profess, we are doing the same thing to the community and bringing dishonor to the name of God. That's why churches historically have done church discipline. 
right? It's, it's not because we're trying to be the moral police. It's because we recognize that a group of Christians, it, it's kind of like a, a, an assurance of co-op or assurance of salvation co-op. We all are gathering and saying, yeah, these people, as best as I can tell, they are Christians. They're bearing that fruit. And when one of us goes sideways and starts living their life like an autonomous individual who says, I don't believe that I have to submit to God. After all, I am God. This group of believers says, uh-uh. Community watching us, community listening to us, that's not the way this goes. And this person, we have talked to them, we have loved them, we have approached them. They refuse to change and see what they're doing is, is incorrect. We got to say publicly, this person's not one of us as best as we can tell. That's a whole other sermon. My point is simply this. Our personal lives have a public element to it. That's what Christianity is about. We are open people for the glory of God. And that's, so when we say test your prayers, that may seem weird, but, but that's really what's going on here. So, so let's read his prayer and then unpack it a little bit. Verses 17 and 19. Look with me. Verse 17. That, so this is Paul praying. He says, remembering you in my prayers, verse 16, verse 17, here we go, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So how do we pray? Look at what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying our prayers are based upon our knowledge of him, verse 17. And because of that knowledge in him, we gain in wisdom and insight, which leads us to pray prayers that are gospel-focused prayers with the emphasis, and he lists it here, three emphasis, hope, glory, and power, the promise of God, the plan of God, and the power of God. So Paul is saying, I am so excited about what's happening in your hearts, Ephesians, that I'm constantly remembering you in prayer, and because I understand Jesus Christ, he's given me wisdom and insight. Here's what I'm praying for you. I'm praying that for the hope, glory, and power of God to be known to you, so you can continue to bear this fruit and be like him. Did you see that here? Uh, verse 18. The, to the hope which he's called you to, the second one, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance? And the third one, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? So let's, let's make this real here. You ever been to a prayer meeting where, if you're actually really listening and paying attention, that the prayer meeting, the things that are being prayed about and the way they're being prayed about sounds, doesn't sound much different than maybe what a, a shift change among nurses might sound like at a local hospital. What, are you, what, what is that? If we swapped out the phrase pray for with the word monitor, like what, what nurses do, monitor someone's health, how different do they sound? So we would say, hey, pray for Joey's knee, or hey, pray for Scott's blown ACL, or pray for Aunt Martha's rest, uh, asthma. And if I swapped out the phrase pray for with monitor, what a nurse does, monitor Joey's knee, monitor Scott's blown ACL, monitor Martha's asthma. I could just as easily be fitting in with a bunch of nurses going over the, 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 the details of their shift change as I could be in a prayer meeting, if that's the extent of the way we pray. You ever had that experience? And I've always wondered, now, now don't get me wrong, okay? Don't, I don't, don't send me an email. I understand praying about those things are really good. We ought to pray for them. Those are good things. 
But if I'm going to read the scriptures and I'm going to study the prayers of the Bible, and by the way, whenever you study the prayers in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, they are, they, they're not praying for physical earthly concerns as ends in themselves. They're always praying those things related to God's purposes, God's character, and God's plans. But so often, when I've been in prayer meetings, we're praying like we're a bunch of doctors and nurses about a shift change and exchanging details about that as opposed to praying gospel-textured prayers. Lord, we pray that Joey would be able to apprehend that you have plans far greater than what he's understanding right now in this injured knee. Lord, we're praying for Scott that he can trust your plans for him far out exceed his now-blown sports career. Lord, we're praying that Martha would have the power to grasp and overcome the depression that's setting in as she's struggling with an ailing and aging body. You see the difference there. We're praying for the same things, but God so often wants to pray about what's happening to the person in the situation, not just get rid of the situation. God is more concerned with how I'm becoming like his son in the midst of all that then that I get those rid of, gotten rid of. How often in your life has God used an adversity and difficulty, the very thing you wanted out of, to bring about some of the richest, sweetest fruit for him? Right? Had God answered your prayer, Lord, get this situation out of here, you would have missed the wonderful crucible of Christian growth. And Paul models it for us here. When we pray, Pray that people get a sense of God's promises that they cling to. That they get a a vision for God's plan that far includes them but far exceeds them. And pray that they understand and can grasp the power of God to get them through that situation. Oh, if the gospel changes our lives, it's got to at least change the way we pray, right? And that's what Paul is beautifully modeling for us in these verses here. Now, verses 17 and 19, they are kind of the, the, the engine of this passage. But, but, but Paul goes on to say something in verses 20 to 23 that are really important, that, that undergird what he's talking about in verses 17 and 19. So let me just read that briefly to you. Um, so let me back up a little bit in verse 19. According to the working of his great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Notice, these are four, there's these four phrases here. Raise him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Here's number three. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, what's going on here? Um, well, let me ask it this way. How much energy, how much power would be required to conquer death for eternity? I'm getting somewhere. I'm getting somewhere. I heard that. How much power would be required to conquer death for eternity for for humanity? It's quite a lot, right? We have no idea. But let's just talk so you get a sense of scale so we can appreciate what Paul is writing. You know, the sun generates... 400 trillion trillion watts of power a second, okay? That's equivalent to a trillion megaton bombs exploding every second, okay? Let's contextualize this. The sun generates enough power every second to supply at our current energy needs 500,000 years of power, 
is that enough power to conquer death? Ooh, uh, who knows? But I want us to get a sense of scale. The reason is, Paul is saying that the power that was required to conquer death, verse 19 and 20, is the same power that God is marshalling to the benefit of his people. Do you see that? Look at verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness, immeasurable, no kidding, of his power toward us who believe, according, here it is, to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Paul is saying that the same amount of power that God marshaled to bring about the resurrection of the Son and to exalt Him, that's what those phrases are showing. This is what's happening. When we think of the resurrection, He's saying, this is it. He raised Him from the dead. He seated it in power such that every power out there ever known is bowing in submission to Him. Remember, the Ephesians would have known that because there were gods of power everywhere. They're seated below, seated below His feet and now He's the head of the church. All that power is working in you. There it is in black and white. That's amazing. Yes. Wow. That's exactly right. Who was that? Was that you? Oh, yes. You were the one that made a comment the other week. I love that. Wow. Okay, so then the next question you're going to ask, we have to ask, is then why is life so tough? Why is my life such a mess? If, If that's true, that the very power God used to raise Jesus from the dead is being marshaled for me. Why is my life so difficult? Why is it the way it is? Now, obviously, I can't answer that. None of us can answer that exclusively, but here's one way to think about it. Maybe because your life really, it's not just a series of struggles and trials without a point. Maybe your life is a workroom in which God is hammering out the image of Christ and your life is the anvil. Let me say that again. Maybe your life is a workroom and God is hammering out the image of Christ and your life is the anvil that it's happening on. Think of it this way. Imagine Christ, right? And then let's put on a a spectrum of being like one another. On the one end, there's Jesus. How far would we have to go to the other end to put you, right? Would you say it's the same distance that would require all the power of the Son to make the two the same? You're starting to see what I'm getting at here? That maybe things are so difficult and struggle because God, by His grace, write down Romans 8, chapter 28, verse, chapter 8, verse 28 to 30, He's conforming us to be in the image of His Son. And I don't know about you, but there's a lot of work to be done to make me like His Son. So what I'm interpreting as tough and difficult, and they probably are, are also opportunities where sin can be crushed, where my selfishness is revealed, where my immaturities are coming to play, and my angry outbursts are showing the sinfulness of my heart. God marshalling all that power for my benefit ought to bring me comfort because that tells me God is not, he's committed to this project. But it also should tell me the power of sin and how much in my own life I ought to fear it and hate it principally because it cost the Son of God his life in order to make that possible. And so, so, so that's what Paul is praying here. Now, Paul's main thrust in his prayer in verses 17 and 19 is that Christians would, 
would have the knowledge of God's hope and their call, that, that they would have the knowledge of God's plan of their inheritance, would have a, a grasp of God's power. But how does that happen? How do Christians grow in this particular way? Let's look back at the text, verse 18. Notice Paul says, the very beginning of verse 18, having the eyes of your, uh, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Okay, so he's praying. Having the eyes of their hearts enlightened to know God's power. That's what he's praying. I'm praying that your eyes of your heart, which meant who they were as people, would be opened so you'd have the knowledge of God's power, enlightened to see it. And then in verses 20 to 23, he gives us a tangible example of the power of God in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. So, he, so he's praying that their eyes would be enlightened to know God's power. Then he teaches that God has already supplied the historical evidence that God has the power necessary to make this happen. He raised his son from the grave and exalted him. Here's the point. Divine illumination and human thought work together. God reveals his power objectively in history. And now he's illuminating the minds of these believers to grasp this truth. God displayed his power in history. That's why the history of Christianity matters. It's not something we just made up. It's not about how we feel about it. That's why the history is important. Because God is displaying his power historically. And also, we are praying that we grasp that his power is working for our benefit as well. Here's the way kind of our culture makes a mistake of it. We either split, this is what we do in post-enlightenment, we split the sacred from the secular. So either we over-spiritualize our faith and make it this all kind of squishy, one-hand-clapping, subjective kind of thing, or we over-rationalize our faith. It's all about knowledge and, and information. It becomes this kind of sterile religious studies moralism. Christianity is neither of those two. Christianity blends beautifully this dynamic spiritual reality infused with human understanding. All you need to do is look at the incarnation of Jesus to see that. One of the major errors of the church historically is we always thought Jesus is just a spiritual being or he's just a human being. We have a problem seeing both spirit and human come together. God works in both, and Jesus was a perfect example of that. Another error we make uh, in our culture, and we do this in the church, is we pit reason and faith against one another as if they're mutually exclusive. You don't see that in Christianity. Reason and faith work together. Both are necessary. Go back to verse 18. Notice Paul saying, that you might know. So he's praying for this work of the Spirit that people's eyes, the heart, their, that their hearts would be enlightened. Why? So they would know. It's referring to the facts. It's referring to the teachings. It's referring to information. But notice in verse 19, notice in verse 19, Paul talks about, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who, what? Believe. The emphasis on exercising faith to apprehend God's power. You will never split in Christianity the knowledge, the knowing, from the believing. They work together. They work in tandem one with another. Yes, faith goes beyond reason. It does. But faith rests on reason. Let me read to you um, John Stott, uh, an amazing theologian. I think it was at the Anglican Church. He wrote this. Knowledge is the ladder by which faith climbs higher, the springboard by which it leaps further. Reason and faith 
need each other to comprehend fully God's amazing power available to believers in Christ. It is not one without the other. We need them both. And the way we get them, moving it from theory to experience, is going back to my earlier illustration of power necessary. To the degree that you don't see sin's grip in your life, to that degree you won't cling to the cross of Christ. To the degree that you cling to the cross of Christ, to that degree sin's grip on your life is loosened. They work together. If I don't see my sin, and if I'm not seeing how it just sends my life sideways and deforms me and destroys my relationships, my family, my community, if I don't see it for what it really is, I don't see that for what it really is, quite frankly. I'll see this as a nice religious thing that's good for you people, but not for me. But if I only see this, and I don't see sin, or if I only see sin but not that, I will be led to despair and heartache and have no hope. Christianity is this amazing story of bringing together the worst in this world with the best out of this world and bringing them together and one crushing the other without having to sacrifice reason and faith, knowledge and belief. That's what Christianity is about. And it does so in the most oddest of ways. It does so in ways that since it actually was recorded, all great literature tries to copy and emulate a redemptive story. This morning, it's also a very special morning because we also get to celebrate communion with each other. That death was conquered through the death of Christ. Right? Amazing. John Owen, a Puritan, wrote a book, phenomenal title, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. We got life because someone died when we should have, but he died in our place. 